Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this day. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word and show us what you'd have us to see from all of this. And we just thank you for your leading. We thank you for those that are here. And we ask you to bless those who are going to hear this at other times. In your son's name, amen. Esther, chapter 8. Uh, last chapter we covered was uh, Esther making her petition to, to the king to save her people. Haman realizing that uh, his uh, life was a forfeit and being hung. And so now we're going to look at the r chapter 8. Um, Haman's been executed. Verse 1. On, the day, on that day did King Ahasuerus give the house of Haman the Jews' enemy unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to, unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So we're going to stop there because we're now seeing the promotion of Mordecai. And remember, Haman was number two man in the kingdom, and he's now executed, and, and King Ahasuerus is basically promoting Mordecai to number two, and we're going to see that by the end of the story it is official. He is number two in the kingdom. And so this gives us a, a glimpse of Mordecai is very similar to Joseph early on. Uh, how Joseph went through, you know, being sold into slavery, being accused of rape, and then being promoted to number two. We got Mordecai not being rewarded for what he's done for the king. <laughs> being, having an enemy that's out to get his life, and now he's being promoted, and he's going to save his people just as Joseph has done. And both of them are a picture of Jesus and what he does. Comes along and rescue, you know, is falsely accused and rescues his people. And, and so we see all of this tie-in to, to all through history of the Jews to a picture of Jesus. And this is Mordecai and Esther's the tool that was used to bring this about. And so we're, we're there and we're seeing him being promoted. And Esther was given... You know, she's got her room in the palace. Now she's given a house out, just outside the palace, and she gives it to Mordecai because technically, even though she has that house, she can't leave the house of the women that she's in. All right? And remember, we talked about this, how the women did not live with the men. They had their own separate place. She has a special place within. She actually has her own suite of rooms in the palace because she is the, the queen, number one queen, and the rest of the concubines and women and, and wives of Hazaris uh, will be off in, a, in, the, in another area for them. And so she takes the house that she's been given and gives it to her uncle and says, this is now your place. <laughs> so he's been elevated. He's got this nice, nice place. And verse 3, Esther spoke again unto the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman and the Agiite, and his devices that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out his golden scepter toward Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king, and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadith the Agiite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil which shall come unto my people, and how shall I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? 
And so here we have Esther coming again before the king. Now this is the second time she's come before the king uncalled. And we talked about this earlier where she told Mordecai, he goes, you need to go talk to the king <laughs> to save our people. And she goes, if anybody goes before the king uncalled and he doesn't extend the golden scepter to them, they are executed. So here we have a second time that she's going to, to the king. Now this time she's more bold. She's ready for it. He's already accepted her once. He's come to two banquets, uh, delivered her from her, their enemy. So she's very bold, this one. It doesn't show that she's in fear on this one. But you can see that she falls before him. She's in tears before him. And that, you know, she already knows now that he loves her. You know, the first time that she went to him, if you remember, it had been 30 days since she had been called to the king. So she wasn't sure where she stood in his affections at that point in time. It was like, did I do something to make him upset with me? You know, has he just been busy? Uh, when I come before him, is he going to... To accept here, he's had two feasts with her and, and defended her. So now this time when she comes and starts, you know, and goes into tears, I think she was very sure of the acceptance on this, on this visit. It wasn't one where she had the fear of not being seen for 30 days. There's a great boldness. And it shows, you know, in many ways how we are with God. You know, we are told we have access to God. The king of the universe, and we have access to him, free access. And here's where Esther's at now. She has free access, basically, to the king because she knows she's very comfortable in his love and care for him. It's not like the very, you know, it's not like that first time when she told Mordecai, I haven't been there in 30 days. You guys pray. You know, pray that when I go in there, I don't lose my head. Uh, basically, what she, she didn't say it in that, you know, that, that language, but that's really what she was saying. You know, hey, I go before him. I could, I could be executed because he didn't call. And he hasn't called for 30 days, so I don't, you know, as far as she was concerned, he had some other, you know, girl that he liked a lot better, you know, queen that he, that he liked a lot better at this point. And she shows up and finds out that he still has love for her, and now she goes before him. And you look at her speech, and it goes, if, I have, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the, king's, and, and the thing seems right before him, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the decree of Haman. Now, Haman had written letters in the name of the king with his signet ring that went out and said, on the 12th month, all the people in all the places get up and kill the Jews. That letter still hangs over the Jews at this point in time. All right? Now, who would have it? Huh? Who would have Oh, these letters were made in every language and all for all 120 provinces. It was sent to everybody. It was a decree of the king. And it was copied into everybody's languages and seal, every letter was sealed by the king's signet ring. And it was sent out everywhere and he put it far enough out in advance that you know, everybody would get this information and be ready. And the letter, and, the, and if you remember, the decree said on the 14th day of Adar, which is, was the 12th month, we would consider the tw our 12th month, everybody could rise up and kill the Jews and take the stuff they possess. And this law is sitting out there. I mean, it was, the decree is a law. And it's sitting out there. Esther's, Esther's basically got rid of Haman, but the law is still out there ready to be executed. And so she comes before him and says, uh, by the way, uh, King, the, the law is still there. You got rid of Haman, but the law, and remember Haman came in and said, I'm going to give you uh, 10,000 talents of, 
of silver to into the treasury to, to, to finance this execution of the Jews. And the king said, okay, sounds like a good idea to me because his, his coffers got filled. <laughs> and that, the amount of money that Haman was offering him, if you remember, was almost the full year's taxes to be added to the king's coffer. So the king was going to collect two years, you know, not quite, but uh, you know, close to two years worth of you know, taxes from these people. Yeah, so this was a major gift that Haman was giving the king to, to uh, give this decree. We're going to give up all He's going to lose a bunch of people too, but he's, he's paying for the taxes of, for one year anyway. And so, and then it says that the king held out that golden scepter again to her and said, you know, I'm accepting you. You know, and then she just, you know, she's just crying to him, you know, you know, this is a serious issue for her. Her, not necessarily direct family, but her kindred, everybody in her nation, you know, is going to be killed. Now, yes, he can do something. He can bring the Jews into the palace of, of Sushan so that they could be, you know, the, the palace area could be saved, but it still didn't help the other provinces. And uh, so, but you've got to remember, this is the Medo-Persian kingdom. And I want to turn to Daniel 6 for just a moment. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 14. And this is the story of the princes and everything getting Darius to make a law that you couldn't pray to anybody else because they wanted to kill Daniel. Okay, verse 6. Then those pres these presidents and the princes assembled together unto the king and said unto the king, to him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents in, of the kingdom and the governors and the princes and the counselors and the, and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute. Now, here's where, as we, we think of politicians lying, they have always lied because here they are lying to Darius. Not all the key people <laughs> have agreed to this, this decision. It's actually just a handful of them, but they're, you know, they got enough agreement to say, you know, hey, most of or the majority of, but they're saying all. And we know Daniel didn't have any part of this, and Daniel is actually over them. <laughs> okay? Um, so, and, and we made a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save you, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now the king established the decree and, and signed the writing that it may be uh, that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which alters not. When there was a law made in, in the Medo-Persian Empire, it could not be altered. Okay, here we are. We're, I'm just bringing this story out so we see the the process. Uh, Daniel's actually a little bit before Esther. <laughs> at this point. Um, and then we see the word four in verse nine, the King Darius signed the writing and the decree. It really, really made him, you know, tickled his uh, uh, ego that, yeah, it's a good idea. You know, I, I want to be the only one prayed to for, for 30 days. It, it really sounded good to him. Verse, nine, uh, verse 10, and when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and, and with his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God 
as he did four times. So Daniel, Daniel didn't change his, his pattern just because a wrong law had been created. And remember, the whole reason they did this is because they, they examined Daniel's life and they could find nothing wrong, nothing that they could get him fired or embarrassed by. And that says a lot for how Daniel lived. <laughs> you know, there's not many people that you can look at <coughs> and dig into their past and have them investigated that you're not going to find something in their life <laughs> that has a problem. Now, there are people out there, but you know, especially in the political world, <laughs> And because it says power corrupts and absolute power you know, corrupts absolutely, you know, when, when you get into power, you tend to want to think you can get away from things, get away with things. And Daniel was a man of great integrity and great honor. They couldn't find anything. And they go, well, the only thing we can do is find him in his religion. <laughs> so they created a law to make him <laughs> guilty. And then verse 11, then these men assembled together and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any God or man within 30 days, save of you, king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, That is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which alters not. Then he an then answered they and said before the king, That Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah regards not you, O king, nor the decree, nor the decree that you have signed, but makes a petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore distressed with himself, and he said in his heart to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. So we see King Darius caught up. He got tricked into signing this decree. And he keeps and he keeps going. So you know he keeps making it just as they said. It can't be altered. It can't be altered. And he spends the entire night. And, it's, and it brings out the idea that he hired. He brought in all the lawyers, all the masters of the of the law, and say basically saying, find me a loophole. <laughs> okay. And then we, if you know the story, he couldn't find a loophole and ended up casting Daniel in the lion's den. And you know. The, and Daniel slept with the lions and had no problem. Got you know, came out the next day and. I sleep with lions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then and then he said, you know, okay, now Daniel's okay. Got his God delivered him. Get these guys in here who tricked me. Throw them and their families in, and the lions tore them up. All right, so we're going to go back to Esther chapter eight. So we have here Esther's require requesting of King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. Let's cancel this, you know, we've got to get rid of this decree, okay? And he's in the same boat that Darius is, because Darius was his grand, great-grandfather, uh, grandfather, and he can't change the law any more than Darius did, okay? So we're going to see how he, comes, how he gets around this same thing. Verse 7, then King... Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him, and <coughs> him they have hung on the gallows because he laid a hands on the Jews. Write you also for the Jews as, it, as you like in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring, 
For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may not be reversed. So basically saying, if you guys can think of some, basically he's passing the buck. If you can think of some way to rescue your, rescue your family, you have the ring. You can go ahead and write, the, write, write it up. Uh, this kind of puts them in a, in a quandary because they can't just write the previous letter you got from Haman is, <laughs> is uh, no longer valid because he has already told them. We can't get rid of it. <laughs> but if you can find some way, and they do. We're going to read how they do. But yeah, yeah, they, got, they are going to rescue the Jews anyway. But you know, he's basically saying, I don't know how to do this. If you have some ideas, be, you have free hand. Um, this is kind of a, this doesn't do well. This guy was a great general, but he doesn't seem to be able to rule the country very well. <laughs> He gives over to Haman. Now he's given over to, to Mordecai and Esther. He's not, he's not, you know, as a general, he's a great leader of, of the people. But it doesn't seem that he's a very good day-to-day -day administrator of the government. And, you know, and we see a very interesting king here uh, because yeah, of all of this. <laughs> so in verse 9 it says, And then, the king, then were the king's scribes called at that time, a third time, in the, the time in the third month, that was the month of Sivan, on the third, the twenty-third day thereof, and written according to all that Mordecai commanded them unto the Jews, and to the lieutenants, and to the deputy, and the rulers of the provinces, which were from India to Ethiopia, a hundred and twenty-seven provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and to the, every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. So here we got the same language we had when Haman was wrote, writing there. They got the scribes and said, write down this law. <laughs> We're going to send it to 120 provinces. And you see how big this kingdom was. I mean, we don't really think of these big kingdoms, but it went from India all the way to Ethiopia, across the Euphrates area. You know, the Medo-Persian Empire was a large empire. And of course, it's going to be taken over by the Greeks, which had the same, same area, but they went into Europe, and then by the Romans, who had all of that territory plus more of Europe. So we have very large area here. And so they're getting these people and writing in all languages. It was, there was going to be no excuse. They wrote to the Indians in their language, the Ethiopians in their language, and the Jews in their language. So they're writing multiple letters all over the place. And we're going to look at it in verse 10. And he wrote in the name, wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring and sent letters by post on horseback and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries or young camels. And so they're sending it out with all speed and knowing how to get it out to the various places. Wherein in the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy and to slay and to cause to perish all the power of the people in the providence that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for prey. So the answer that Mordecai and Esther came up with, gather yourself in a defensible place. Anybody who attacks you, you are free, according to the king, to fight back. Fight back. Okay, because before they weren't allowed, they, they had no authority to fight back. In the name of the king, they were going to be killed. Now they're saying, you have the authority to do whatever it takes to save your life. And 
gather together. You know, he's, he's telling them, gather together. If you have 10, 20, 30, 100, 300, whatever you have, get together to defend yourselves. And he says that they were allowed to take the spoil. If they came to fight and you destroyed them, they were allowed to take whatever riches they could from those people. Now, upon the one day in all the provinces of the king of Hazirs, namely upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month of Adar. So they were to gather together one day before they were supposed to be attacked. All right? And so here we have, under the king's authority, <laughs> that they can defend themselves. And you look, they sent it specifically to every province, but to the lieutenants of the armies and everything else saying, you're to protect these people, and you know Haman had done this, and they were probably ready to you know help mobilize the army. Now they've got two sets of orders; they're going to have to decide who to obey. And you can probably guess, as we get even before we get there, who they're going to obey: the dead Haman or the living Mordecai. It's not a hard decision when you're uh, when you're when you're making your decision from a political point of view. You may hate the Jews, you may think Amon's letter was really good, but he's dead. <laughs> you know, or do you follow the living guy who has the king's ring and has been elevated? Uh, if you're a good military general and leader, you're going to follow the guy who's living in, in, in uh, acceptance right now rather than the dead guy who's been, been judged. So we already know that the military now is in a position that they're going to... Uh, even if they don't attack, you know, defend, they're not going to attack because it's not a politically correct, correct thing to do. We think that political correctness is a brand new idea. It's not. It's always been, always been around. You always stood for whatever the, the government stood, especially if you wanted their, their, their blessing. You, you agreed with whatever they said. And so, you know, we, we talk often, there's nothing new under the sun, and there isn't. Political correctness isn't new. You know, moving against the enemies is not new. Everything is still the way it has always been. And we, gotta, we really have to grab hold of that truth because if we forget that there's nothing new under the sun, we tend to begin to believe that we're the first ones that have ever suffered under the way that we suffer. Now, and that's not true. When this country changes its allegiance and we as Christians suffer, it's not new. God's people have suffered all through history, will suffer into the future according to Revelation, and have suffered from the very beginning. Cain slew his brother because his brother's gift was accepted and his was rejected. Persecution of God's people right from the very first book of the Bible. It's not nothing new. And we've got to keep that in mind. You know, uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There is no temptation overtaken us, but such that is common to man. Satan likes to lie to us and say, You're suffering and nobody else has ever suffered like you. You, know, you. You're the only one that's ever had to go through this before. And you know, the sad thing is we buy it. We buy into his lie that we're the only one that has suffered or is suffering, whatever. And it's, he doesn't want us to remember that, and, and it's good. But there is the truth that a shared, a shared misery that you're not the only one does tend to help you. It doesn't make you right. It doesn't really help you 
get through what it is, but it should help you realize that you're not the only one. And that should help a little bit. It does for me, anyway, to know that nothing that I go through is new. Nothing that I go through has not happened before. You're right. It doesn't make it easier to go through necessarily. But right. taking one lie of Satan out, you know, because, because if you're suffering something that everybody else, some other people have suffered, it makes it more easy to share that you're hurting. And the word is hope. Yeah. And it gives you a hope because if you're, no, if you think know. you're the only one, then you're going to go, well, I can't share this with every, anybody else. They, they may think that I'm really, really bad. I'm, I'm the only one suffering. I was just going to say. But it allows you no, to open up to somebody else. And that's like the purpose of the, this Celebrate Recovery class. It, you're getting people that are suffering the same way and you can open up in front of them and say, I'm not afraid to share with these people because they're going through the same problem that I'm going through, but in reality, all sin issues are the same issue. Now, each sin may be different, but it's still the same process of the, you know, you do it because in some way it makes you feel good initially, and then Satan comes and hits you with how bad you are and how sinful you are, and then you pull back and say, well, I can't share this with him because somebody might think I'm really a bad person. And Satan does that on the flip side of it. And we have to be able to understand everybody goes through <coughs> problems. Now, are my problems the same as anybody else's problems? No, they're not exactly the same. But the bottom line, they really are the same. It's a sin issue that we're dealing with. And Satan likes us to keep our sin issues hidden from everybody else. He loves that darkness. He loves to be able to attack us and say, I know something about you, and if they did, they probably wouldn't like you anymore, which is usually a lie. You know, there are people who aren't going to like you, but there are also going to people who are going to show God's love to you and say, "You're still loved. Come on, let's let's get over. Let's help get over this problem." So you're saying Satan uses blackmail? Satan loves to blackmail us. <laughs> you know, one, one person is easier to attack than than a whole hand. Satan comes in, and you know, we've all gone through this. You know, we're in in our mind, we'll hear this. You know, you know you'll, if, if you do this, God will forgive you, and, and there's not a real problem. We all fail, and you, these are the thoughts we go through as we get ready to sin, okay? And we all do it. We all do it, and it's all from Satan, and Satan goes through, and then as soon as you do it, Satan comes along and says, what a terrible sinner, sinner you are. You're a terrible example of a Christian, and, and he comes and condemns us. He tells us all about how we're going to be forgiven, which is true. But we're not to go out and sin just so we can be forgiven. We're not to go out and sin just so we can get God's grace. But when we do fall into sin, God will forgive us. He will give us grace. So Satan uses that against us to say, well, you know, you know if you fall, it's no big deal. And then he comes in and he condemns us. You know, what a terrible Christian you are. You, you couldn't even follow God for one week, two weeks, whatever, you know, a day, 24 hours, whatever, one hour, whatever it may be that it took you to fall. It's been said by many preachers, or not even early, just as last century, that there will come a time when Christians will not endure prayer for one hour or two-hour service, and now we're, we're pretty much there. You know, we have a song, Sweet Hour of Prayer, and how many people actually have ever prayed for an hour? Not a whole lot, in my experience. And how many people
get antsy after an hour's worth of service, you know, and kind of, you know, start looking at their watch. You know, as a pastor, I've seen it happen. You know, I've watched people, you know, kind of looking at their watches, trying to figure out what time it is. And it's kind of a sad thing. It's kind of a very sad thing that people can't sit down and enjoy God for a good portion of their day. That used to be in the 17 and 1800s, you know, when you had to travel a ways to get to church, and when you got, you had to load everybody up in the, in the wagon, you had to hitch up the wagon, run the wagon, travel, you know, 10 to 15 miles, which we don't think twice about in, in this day, <coughs> you know, but it took two to three hours, four hours, five hours, you know, to come from your farm into town where the church was, you spent all day at the church. You'd have a sermon from 9, 10 o'clock in the morning till noon. You'd break for, for a lunch that everybody went out, on the, you know, out in the yard to do. Then you came back and you had another two or three hours and you got done early enough to take your trip and get back home before the sun went down. But you spent the entire day in church on Sunday. Most people today would go crazy if they spent the whole day in church. And most of that time in their day was not singing, not listening to people sing, but listening to the, the Bible being read and a message from, their, from the pastor. You know, what would happen if we had a six-hour service, you know, you know, start at nine and didn't get done until three, four o'clock in the afternoon in, in our day? Probably wouldn't. <laughs> but you know, it really wasn't that long ago that that was true in, the, in this country. Even in the early 1900s, you pretty much came to church, spent all day Sunday, oh, and when you didn't go to church. everybody knew. And on Sunday, you didn't do anything. You went to you went to church, and once you were home, that was a day of rest. And we probably should have a day. Of, we need a day of rest. You know, even psychology and, and doctors tell us we need a day of rest. God told us we needed a day of rest right from the very beginning. Uh, but most of us get really active and, and try to not have a day of rest, and it's not good for us. It's not good for our physical health. It's not good for our emotional health. And we need that time where we just kick back and say, this is a day for rest. And even when TV and stuff for, and radios first came out, they wouldn't listen to the TV or radio on, on Sundays because it was a day of rest. You weren't going to do anything. It was just a day you talked about Bible, you had family. Uh, poor moms, they had to make the feast, so yeah. they, they had to work pretty hard on Sunday. <laughs> uh, but we have all of this going on for this rescue. And now we're going to look. Uh, so they've been given the command, get together, <laughs> stand and be ready to, to work against the enemy. Uh, verse 14, so the post rode and the mules and the camels went out and they hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment and the decree was given at the Sushan Palace. And you can imagine how hard these riders rode. You know, the king said, get it out there. This was done in the king's name. First <laughs> Pretty much it was. This was a special thing and it was, you know, and they did have posts where they would switch out their animals and when they'd hit these cities and the, and, the, and the guards and they would switch out their animals and, and it, this is where the kind of the Pony Express did come from, these kind of mentalities. These post, postal services that weren't available to the public necessarily, 
but the king's edicts went out and they had these very things. They would write, to, they'd ride hard to the next fort, they would get their animal dropped off and they'd pick up another animal and you know, when the king says this is to, to get out immediately, it went out. The Romans were very efficient with their postal, postal services and their, ro and their roads. And, uh, and they even had ways for the public to get their, their mail out in a convenient way, but not through the express routes that the, uh, the governor, government used. And they could get from India to Ethiopia messages in, in no time at all. You know, as far as their day was concerned, to us it would still take a long time because it took weeks to months to get there. But in their day, that was a very fast <laughs> travel because you're, and you know, we've talked about this in other places, the average distance you covered in a day, uh, if you were by yourself, you might get 20 miles. If you were with a caravan or a group of people, you went five to 10 miles a day to go anywhere. You think about it. It wasn't so long ago that uh, to leave chloride to go to Kingman was a big event. Okay, I drive it. I drive it five times, uh, four or five times a week. But it wasn't so long ago that if you left chloride to go to Kingman, it was newsworthy. In 1907, there were articles about people who went to Kingman that they'd be gone for three or four days. Okay, they were in the newspaper in 1907 because they were going to be gone. You leave this town to go to Kingman, you're gone what three, four hours? Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, even today you're you're gone for an hour to two hours, but I mean the railroad took you four hours to get to Kingman. Wow. Okay. Stage even longer. I mean, the stagecoach was longer, and if you rode your own horse, <laughs> you know, it's 30 miles. And if you rode your horse, you could make it in a day if you really wanted to push your horse. Most people didn't push their horse that hard. It was a two-day trip by horse even to get to Kingman because you were not going to you weren't going to push your horse because you didn't want to, you know, horses were too valuable to push that hard. So you would not have it would be a two-day trip just to go to Kingman by 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 horse and if you walked it, definitely a two-day trip because again even in the states it was about a 20 miles is a pretty good day's walk uh, so here we got these people being pressed <laughs> get moving get going and Mordecai went out from the president presence of the king in the royal apparel blue and white and a great gold crown and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susan rejoiced and was glad. It's kind of interesting. He goes out. This kind of tells you the difference in the personality of him and Haman. Haman demanded people serve him, demanded people bow down before him, and created this. He got his worship, but he got it very grudgingly. Mordecai goes out, and you can just see the difference. People are... He's had respect in the city. He already had respect in the gates and honor other than, other than from Haman. And he goes out and the people rejoice. In Proverbs, we're told when the righteous rule, the city rejoices. When the unrighteous rule, the city is, I can't remember what the, what, what the proverb said. But the, the city grumbles? Well, <laughs> I don't remember what the proverb said, but, it, but the first part I remember, when the righteous rule, the city rejoices. I think it says when they're unrighteous rule, they mourn. 
I think is what it says. But I do know the first part, the righteous, when the righteous rule, you know, and here is righteous Mordecai being going out, and you see the, the city rejoicing. Uh, they're, they're, and it shows you the reputation he had in the city even before he got promoted. And so, and we've all been there, we've seen it, you know, when, when we have a, in, even in America, when we see good uh, government officials being promoted, there's rejoicing, we're, you know, we're going to have good laws, things are going to be enforced. You get somebody who's not a very righteous person, and you start seeing all the things that are promoted that are unrighteous, and there's the, the depression that happens in the country, and here we're seeing that changeover. You know, they haven't changed kings, but you've changed the official <laughs> who's enforcing things. And so we're seeing a rejoicing, and they were gra uh, glad. Verse 16, and the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every province, in every city, w wherever the king's command and his decree came. The Jews had joy and gladness and feasts and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews for their fear of the Jews fell upon them. <laughs> All right? This is kind of an interesting. I love that last part. Many became Jews, not because they really believed in God or wanted to be Jews, but they saw kind of the handwriting on the wall. Uh, Judaism is the accepted, you know, uh, we're going back into political correctness. You know, many of these people who became Jews at that time really probably weren't even truly Jews. They were just you know, saying we're going to become Jews because, you know, it is acceptable. For the same reason in 400 A.D. when, when Constantine said that the Christianity was the approved religion of, of Rome. He didn't say it was the only one, he, but he said this is the one that the Caesar agrees with and we're going to kind of follow. Everybody jumped on the bandwagon of Christianity and almost wiped out Christianity in many ways because it got flooded with people who were quote-unquote Christian, but not really Christian. They just said, we're Christians because it was what is accepted. Same thing that has been true in America for, for most of the 200 years of our country. You were Christian because it really was the thing to do in this country, for many of them. And in the early days, if you read into our history, out of the 13 colonies when they were created, all 12 of the 13 colonies had an official denomination of Christianity that was approved in their state. The one who didn't have an approved denomination, you had to be a Christian to be able to hold office. <laughs> and all 13 colonies basically had a statement in their constitutions that said, well, any officer of this country had to, to attest to their Christianity, you know. I affirm that I will hold uphold biblical standards in the name of Christ and all these different things that they put in there, okay. And our, our country was founded as a Christian country, you know, and it was, you had to have Christianity in all the different other states when they first started for, the, for many years. And, but the flavor of Christianity wasn't always <laughs> truly Christian because there were a lot of people who said they were Christian and, and made all their affirmations but did not know Jesus. They just said they were Christians. And we see that today that many people that you talk to when you ask them, tell me about your Christianity, you know, once, they, once they say I'm a Christian, well what does that mean to you? 
You know, and you'll have all kinds of different reasons why they think they're a Christian. And oftentimes they have nothing to do with Jesus. And that is sad because Christianity is a relationship with Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And knowing that it is only through him that we are saved. And yet we'll hear people go, well, I'm a Christian. I try to, I try to do good. <laughs> or I try to follow what the Bible says. Okay, but that's not being a Christian. The Christian has accepted that you're a sinner and in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here we're seeing many people becoming Jews. <laughs> Not because they wanted to follow the, follow the God of the Jews, but they go, okay, we can follow these rituals. They give us a whole bunch of rules. We can, we can follow these rules and become Jews. And unfortunately, even for the Jews today, they, they follow rules more than they have a relationship with God. And unfortunately, for many Christians, they're following rules rather than having a relationship with God. And this is why it's important. When I talk to people and they say, I'm a Christian, I'm going to, I always, almost always follow it up with, what does that mean? What does being a Christian mean to you? Because I know that so many people claim the name of Christ. And you know, to me, the scariest words in the Bible is when Jesus said, many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And you look at the list. I, didn't I cast out demons, feed the poor, feed, you know, clothe the, clothe, the, clothe the naked, go to the prison and visit people? You know, great things. <laughs> All things that we should do as a Christian. <laughs> and what does he say? Depart from me. I never knew you. And we have many, many thousands or millions of people in this, especially this country, but around the world, who, who say, I'm a Christian who don't know Jesus and that Jesus doesn't know them. And so it's critical for us to be able to say, do you truly believe in Jesus? Do you truly believe that you were a sinner in need of a savior and the savior came? Yeah. Because it's three parts, because we have to repent from our sin. We have to recognize we're a sinner so that, we'll, so that we will repent and accept Jesus Christ. And many people have trouble with the first one, believing they're a sinner. A lot of kids uh, who grow up in the church have trouble believing that they're sinners as an adult because they never, they never really went out and did anything. You know, especially if they followed God, most, you know, followed God most of their life, they don't really recognize that they're sinners quite often because they didn't get into drugs, they didn't get into alcohol, they didn't, you know, they didn't go into fornication. They followed God fairly well. And so they kind of go, well, I, you know, I'm not really a sinner. I did all the things you said. I still, I was raised in a Christian family. I went to church, well, Sunday school, church a couple times a year. Grandma made us. But, yeah. Even people, like you said, even some people who get into those sins don't recognize that they're really a sinner. They're just as, they have some failings. Well, <laughs> you know, like, one may not even recognize it as sin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're always, and that's part of what we have to recognize, that we are sinners. And even if you've walked with Christ 80 years, you're still going to sin and you are a sinner. And so this is, I bring all this up just because it said many in that day became Jews. And a lot of them came, became Jews just in name only. Because remember, even at this time, there's no temple for them to worship in. There's no sacrifice going on. So all they're doing is going through the routines 
uh, Passover. They would do their do their do their Passover meal. They would kill the lamb and have the lamb and and the, the herbs and all the other stuff that goes with it. And then they would do their they were going through the ceremonies. I can't believe how many people will spit out the words "I am a sinner" and not have a second thought about it, no conscience about it, mm-hmm. no nothing. I'm a sinner. Yep, I'm a sinner. But, but that's why the second step is to realize that sin deserves punishment. And without, first you've got to recognize you're a sinner, or otherwise you have nothing to be saved from. Then you have to recognize that sin deserves punishment. And this is why I said this is the gospel message. We are sinners. We deserve punishment. Jesus paid for that punishment. And all three parts have to be believed. You can't say, well, I, okay, Jesus, I want, you know, I want eternal life and not recognize that you're a sinner. But a lot of people think that when you say, when I say I am a sinner and I deserve punishment, well, what would they put you in jail for? Well, they're not going to put me in jail. Because I'm okay with, with, with man's laws. But yeah. if it's God's laws, then I'm wrong. Right. And, that, and that's, and the, the people are going to come up with all kinds of reasons not to accept that they deserve punishment. Because like you say, I haven't violated anything that's going to put me in jail. Well. Maybe not, but God's got a different different standard, and we talked a lot. You know, in in Leviticus we talked about God's God's definition of truth is different from man's definition of truth, because in Leviticus he says if you don't say everything you know, you don't you don't tell what you know, you have not told the truth. Okay, and we don't usually look at that. As a matter of fact, our courts. The lawyers tell you to not say any more than you have to say. But we're in violation of the oath that we take as a, as a witness because the oath says, I, now they say, I promise or affirm <laughs> to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And your lawyer's telling you, you don't answer anything that they didn't ask you. So you've promised to tell the whole truth, and yet your lawyers are telling you to violate your oath when you stand, get on the stand and don't, you know, don't answer it any more than you are asked. So you're in contradiction right there. You, the, you're promising to do it as God says to do it, the whole truth, and your lawyers tell you, tell part of the truth. Right, so just jumping back into 16, the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor Light in this particular instance means doctrine and, and truth. And they had gladness, mirth. You know, they were happy. You know, they were joyous, which is uh, a little deeper, deeper meaning. They, they, they had had honor and splendor you know, and then more honor. You know, the, the people's attitudes toward the Jews were changed that <laughs> at this point in time. You know, they went from wanting to kill them and destroy them you know, be impressed by Haman, but there's always been the desire to destroy God's people out there. And we talked about that at the very beginning. People are always out to destroy and hurt God's people. And it's not necessarily them that do it. It is Satan's motivation to, it's Satan's motivation to push for God's people to be destroyed because he doesn't want them, he doesn't want it to be promoted anymore than it can because his desire is to hurt God. So he doesn't want God's people bringing more people to God. (laughs) 
because he knows his goal is all he's going to do is keep people from turning to God. Now, how he does that, he doesn't care because he'll get them into a false religion. He'll get them into not believing in God. Uh, he'll get them into believing in God but not actually turning to God and making a, a complete turning to God. He doesn't care if somebody starts following God as long as they don't turn to Christ. And he likes people doing formal things. Go ahead and go to church every day of the week. As long as you don't become a Christian, Satan's okay. Yeah. And one of the pastors that I was, that I was listening to said, the, the best place to go to have your, your heart hardened toward God is the church because you get familiar with it. And we've got to be careful with familiarity because God can say, we can get so familiar with routine that we, we start just following the formalism. And that's a way a lot of Christians can get also. You've turned your heart to God, you are a Christian, you are following him, and then he gets you so wrapped up in the externals of Christianity that you no longer serve God. You go to church every Sunday, you sing your songs, you listen to some pastor teach you, and then you go off and do whatever you want for the rest of the week. Uh, you know, and this is true. Some churches are really very formalized. Uh, I've gone to churches where you know exactly what's going to happen every Sunday. You know, they may change the songs but, and the message, but you know exactly what's going to happen. And heaven help anybody who wants to change the order of of the way it happens. And this can happen in some very good churches, and this is what you've got to be careful of. Uh, uh, most Baptist churches that come in, you sing three hymns, you have a, an offering, you have a special song, you have a, a preacher say, give a message, and you have your closing song, and you go home. That's not our church. <laughs> you know, you know, and even, even in some of these churches that are saying, we freed ourselves up from all this for, you know, format, you go to them, they do 20 or 30 minutes worth of praise choruses, they do, a, they do an offering, they have a message from the priester, they have a closing song, and they'll swear to you they don't have a planned, <laughs> planned thing, but you go to their church, and there you go. 20 or 30 minutes of songs, the pastor preaches, and, you know, uh, and again, heaven help you if you actually change the, <laughs> change the order. Yeah. But we've got to be careful of that, because it's not... And I understand that idea because it makes it easy to plan a sermon, <laughs> plan your service. You just you kind of fall into this routine. But if God says to change it, you change it. And we have to be careful of that. And some churches are very formal. Uh, you've got the Catholic churches that most of them are, have the exact same message sent by the Pope, <laughs> or you know, or the or the Vatican actually. You know, probably not directly from the Pope, but you know, you do. You do everything in the same order, and, the, and all the churches are preaching the same little homily, and you go home. But that's true also of many of the other formal churches. And we have to be careful, because it is not a ritual that we follow. It is a relationship with God, and Satan loves to get us wrapped up in rituals. When to stand, when to kneel, when yeah. to bow. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, because if he can get you into rituals then it just becomes routine and habit. And this is one of the reasons many times when we're singing songs, I'll bring out points in the songs. Are we thinking about what we sing? 
or are we just singing it because we know the song and, and we like the song and we just sing it and we're not really thinking about the words. And some of these, and these songs we sing have some very powerful words when we listen to them. Some of the choruses do, but many of the hymns are very powerful doctrinal statements when we pay attention to what we're singing. And it's very important that we pay attention and people like myself who've got most of the hymns memorized <laughs> have to concentrate on what am I singing? You know, is it, you know, what am I doing? Am I just singing a song to sing a song or am I really praising God and, and, and doing it not out of vain repetition, which he says we're not to do, but in integrity and true worship? And Again, you know, because we sometimes know the songs really well, we can just, okay, I'm singing, I'm not thinking. You know, how many times do we do that in our cars? We're listening to songs in the car. We sing our songs and, you know, and we're just singing along with the song and not really thinking about what the song is. And if anybody asks you, do you know the words of the song, you probably go, no. <laughs> you were just singing it, but you don't really know the words. And, you know, sometimes, especially if you're listening to non-Christian music, sometimes you don't really want to be singing the songs that you're hearing. Yeah. But it can also be true of Christian songs. There are a lot of Christian songs on the radio and stuff that just aren't biblical songs. And we want to be careful what we fill our mind with. We want to be careful as we're listening to different speakers, are they truly godly speakers? Are, we, are they speaking in what needs to be spoken and, and is biblical? And this is where discernment comes in. If we're looking, if we're letting the Holy Spirit lead us, he's not going to let us hear something without saying, uh, you know, are you paying attention to what you're listening to? Uh, and I, my, one of my greatest stories is that I was listening to the music, you know, the Christian songs, and the, you know, music station in the background, and all of a sudden, you know, the guy said something, and all the alarm bells on my head went off. You know, what did he just say? And I had to start paying attention. I'm going, oh, this is not... <laughs> Yeah, he's not being biblical now. And this is important for us because I've had this even happen to me on very pastors that I love to listen to. Every once in a while, they'll say something, I'm going, did he really just say what I thought he said? Which, when I'm playing it on the computer, I just rewind it a little bit and go, you know, oh, no, I heard it wrong, or he did say what I thought he said, you know, and I have to go, My, this poor guy that I really like, he just said something. You know, something that's not biblical. And I wanted, and I tell people, I can get off on, on areas too, and I want people to be good Bereans. Look at the scriptures. Understand that, you know, number one, I could say something wrong that I didn't mean to say. Maybe I misunderstood when I studied and said something wrong. Get in the Bible, look at the Bible, because a good teacher is never going to do it on purpose. <laughs> But we're human. We're human. And we might just say something wrong. We might use the wrong, wrong set of words or something, you know, and, and say something totally different than we mean, that we mean to say. That's possible, too. So we need to always get into God's word and say, is it correct? Did this person teach me correctly? Because when you stand before Jesus, you're not going to be able to say, well, so-and-so taught me this. And he's going to say, well, why didn't you study? Now, that person who taught you is in even bigger trouble because we are held at a higher standard. 
you know, uh, James 3, 1 says, many of you ought not be teachers for the judgment is greater for the teacher. Why? Because we influence more people's lives. You know, granted, they're supposed to be Bereans, but if we teach them wrong, we can hurt their life in the, into the future. And so God's going to hold us at a much higher standard and say, you hurt. <laughs> you know, uh, out of your 20 people, you know, you hurt 20 people, 18 of them actually studied and were good Bereans and didn't go wrong, but two of them went wrong. And that's the scariest thing in the world you can think of as a teacher, that somebody might be misled by something you said <laughs> because they didn't do their own, you know, didn't go and do their own study, but still you led them down the wrong path. And so it is a critical place to be. We're all supposed to teach. We're all, you know, you know, to find somebody to teach. So we need to be careful and how we do it. But not all people are going to teach large groups. <laughs> and but those people that teach large group, pastors are held at a very high standard. Teachers held to a high standard. Fathers are held to a standard because God says that we're, the father is the one who's supposed to teach his family. You know. And if he hands it off to the wife, that's fine. But when God says, what did you do to your family? How did your family you know, grow spiritually? He, you can't say, well, my wife did. He's going to go, no. You, know, you were responsible. <laughs> you know, if they went wrong or the wife didn't teach right, the man is still the one, the father is still the one that's held responsible because he was the one directed by God to do it. And the same in the business world. You know, the, business, the manager may let other people do it, but the one that the boss is going to hold accountable for it is going to be the manager. Uh, and, the, and the manager goes, well, so-and-so did it. They go, ah, you were in charge of it. You were in charge. And believe me, I've been there. And you can't just pass the buck over and say somebody else is responsible. Now, you can go yourself to them and say, why did you do it? But you're going to be the one that's responsible. And God does the same thing. He holds each person responsible for their level of teaching, their level of participation and we need to always be ready for that granted every single person is to be a Berean I listen to all these different speakers and I have to look at it and say you know when they say something that doesn't sound right I have to go back and look at it and there's times when I've actually gone to them and said you know gone to a different pastor and said you know did you you know this is what I heard thought I heard you say you know is this what you meant and go back and just gently ask and it's important that we do that with our you know the people that are teaching us you know and not being snotty or even harsh and that's why I said I've always gone with them this is what I thought I heard you say <laughs> because I can hear wrong just like it you know as, as well you know and they may have spoken wrong and it gives them an opportunity to say oh no I didn't I, if I said that I didn't mean to say that or I don't think I said that <laughs> but we go gently to the leaders because most a good leader is not purposely going to try to mislead you. They're not purposely going to try to mistreat, mis, 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 uh, misteach you. you know, and they're gonna, I guarantee if you, if you really found something they've said wrong, a good leader is going to say, oh my goodness, I gotta, I've got to correct this with the people because it is honest that we want to do this. Now, Will we, if it's something we do believe, or we will defend that and, and try to try to explain it. I but think a lot of pastors, if I were to walk up to any pastor, I think most of them would be offended that I come up and, and said that. Hey, I think you talked that wrong. 
No, you didn't listen. Again, it depends on how you approach it. When I, like I said, when I've done it, I go, Pastor, this is what I thought I heard you say. Is this what, is this what you said? And let them, you know, most of the time they'll go, no, that's not what I, I, I didn't really mean. If, if that's what I, you know, uh, if you go, you taught that wrong, you probably put them on their defensive. You know, uh, and this is, again, how you approach people can be a big deal. You know, because if you attack somebody, the natural response is to put up their defenses and attack back. And this is what you're taught in, if you have ever worked with the public, you are basically encouraged to apologize to them and be kind to them and, and, and work your way in. It doesn't always work. And it's really, it's called the law of reciprocation. If you attack somebody, they attack. If you come, if you come gently with somebody, you usually get a gentle response back. And I've worked with the public most of my life. And there are people you're not going to be able to make happy no matter what you do. They're just going to complain and gripe and, and fight the whole time. Uh, and I was one that I always I was ready to give people more than they wanted to make them happy. Uh, but when they attacked and made it sound like they'd never made a mistake, I had a lot harder time dealing with those people. You know, and it's like, you know, because it's like, okay, everybody makes mistakes, and you're coming at me like you've never made a mistake in your life. They were, I found it hard to be nice to them, even though that was my job, was to be nice to them. And yet it was hard. So I've learned when I am going to try to deal with something that's going to be sensitive, I start with a very humble position of, you know, hey, you know, I may not have heard this right, even if I know that I didn't, you know, I, I had them on tape. I listened to it three or four times to make sure I will still come with, you know, a more humble, you know, that this is what I thought I heard you say. Is this what you meant? Because even if they said it, they may not have meant it. You know, it's so easy when you get moving along to say something and get your words twisted around and say something that you didn't mean to say. And we've all done that at some point in our time. You know, you come in to make an apology and you, you end up tripping over your own words and it comes out worse than, than what you thought it was going to be. You probably shouldn't have said anything, you know, and then the way, but, but we as teachers end up doing the same thing. Sometimes we get all tangled up and we end up saying something that we didn't really mean and, and I've had to go back out at one time, you know, when somebody's brought it to my attention and said, hey, you know, you know I, it came out that I said this on, in this meeting and I really, <laughs> don't believe this and this is what it needs to be. Uh, if they're going to get mad at you, they've got a problem. Uh, if they think they're so perfect they'll never make a mistake, they've got a problem. But we also have to analyze how did we approach, how did we approach them. If somebody came up to me, Pastor, you taught this wrong, and <laughs> whoa, you know, it's like, <laughs> uh, I would have to go back and listen to the, to the tape to make sure that, you know, what they were saying, but you know, I would have a hard time with being aggressively attacked that I taught something wrong, because I'm going to have to look at it and say, okay. <laughs> but again, because I'm human, my defense—if you want to attack me, my defenses are going to come up. I may not, because I've been trained not to, you know, directly attack you. But my defenses are going to come up, and I'm not going to listen as well as I should, because then I'm going to be battling my own self, saying. Okay, don't speak, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't attack back, you know, and I'm going to be spending more time trying to tell myself to be, 
you know, do what I, you know, be professional and be kind than <laughs> listening to what they're saying. And that happens all the time. And we all do that. And that's what I'm talking about. When I was in the, you know, public world and people come up with, with this attitude, I've never made a, I've never, you know, come across as I've never made a mistake. I'm doing more of trying to keep myself <laughs> calm and not attack them than listening to what it, you know, what they're really trying to say because I'm trying to keep myself from getting angry at them for their, for their attitude. And so, but if, we co if you come gently to people, usually <laughs> they will accept. <laughs> they may not agree with you, but they may accept and, and listen and not attack back. Um, all right, we're going to end here. Lord, we just come before you, and we thank you for this day. We thank you for your protection of your people back then with under Esther, but also, Lord, for your protection of us today, that you keep us, you protect us, and that, Lord, you will always guide and, and lead us through everything that we go through. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.